Welcome to Business Trip, a podcast about psychedelic startups. I'm your host, Greg Kubin, alongside Matthias Serebrinski. We're partners at Simed Ventures, a fund investing in psychedelic medicine and mental health. In some ways, Christian Angermeyer is an unlikely psychedelic evangelist, and in fact, used to be skeptical of psychedelics. Then a few years ago, Christian was introduced to psychedelic medicine by a neuroscientist at a dinner beginning his curiosity and ultimately leading to his first psilocybin mushroom experience in the Caribbean. He said it was the most meaningful experience of his life. An entrepreneurial light bulb went off in his head about the immense potential for psychedelics to treat mental health, which ultimately led to the companies and initiatives we're gonna talk about today. Christian is the co-founder of Atai Life Sciences and was an early investor in Compass Pathways. These were two of the first companies commercializing psychedelic medicine. Compass's lead program uses psilocybin-assisted therapy for treatment-resistant depression. And Atai operates multiple drug development programs with DMT, R-ketamine, and ibogaine. Simed Ventures and our investing community invested in Atai. Christian has also launched a fund dedicated to brain health called Remind. He has started two longevity biotech companies, and does a lot of diverse investments through Apiron, his family office. In today's episode, Christian will describe how he thinks the psychedelic landscape will play out in the next couple of years. He explains his philosophy about patents, and he opens up about his own psychedelic journeys and describes the unfolding of his spiritual path. And now, the interview, with Matthias opening things up with Christian Engermeyer. Christian, welcome to the show. You're an investor in multiple funds, a founder of multiple companies. You're working on many areas, longevity, blockchain, brain health, mental health. Why do you do all this? What's your motivation? First of all, thanks for having me. I always love talking about what I'm passionate about. And that's already the answer. Like I'm either starting companies myself or investing in companies in topics, themes, areas, business models which I'm personally passionate about, where this sort of passion and curiosity comes out the most is in biotech. We focus on uh, mental health, as you said, and longevity, which is really driven by my personal, not just curiosity, but by my personal wish. First of all, I don't want to age. Second, I think life is so awesome. And I think the next decade is going to be the most awesome in human history that I want to experience where humanity is going for as long as possible. This is why I want to slow down and ultimately really stop and cure, in a way, aging. Uh, And at the same time, I personally want to be happy. And I think that's what we all want to be happy. Like we all want to be happy and healthy and we want to, I think, do it as long as possible. So this is why mental health and longevity are sort of the two obvious ones which I'm doing, not just for my own curiosity, but sort of literally for my own benefit. But by me doing it for my own benefit, hopefully, ultimately, literally 100% of the world population will profit because ultimately the total addressable market for longevity and for mental health issues is 100% of the world population. Because again, that's what we all want. We want to be healthy and happy. You want to live forever, or at least very long. You mentioned this idea of being healthy and happy a few times. And 
this is what I'm sitting with. Many of the people that propelled civilization forward uh, were not necessarily happy, right? From artists to scientists. I, I wouldn't call them happy. Maybe they were tormented, definitely discontent. So how do you make friends with this idea of that maybe happiness is not what moves civilization forward? It's a good question. So first of all, it doesn't mean, even in my case, that you're always happy because it's technically not possible because you also then you wouldn't know what happiness is if you don't feel the absence of it. I think also the biggest learnings in your life, sometimes you have by hard episodes. So happiness doesn't always need to be like this giggly happiness, but I think what everybody deserves and I think what is completely can be married with what you just said. You still can be curious. You still can be striving for more. You still can be striving for improvement, but at the same time, have that feeling that sort of in generally your world is all right and you are all right. Yeah, that makes sense. I was chatting today earlier with Greg and, and we kind of are working through a couple different things. And one of the things I told him is like, I'm very optimistic and we will figure all this out. And then I hung up the phone and I started asking myself, why am I so optimistic? And this is my explanation. I had a baby six weeks ago and I'm so high on my own supply of oxytocin <laughs> that like, you know, whatever happens, I'm seeing it through these very positive lenses, this like, you know, positive optics. And so I think that's also where you're coming from. Overall, I think life is fucking amazing. Not just my life. I think life as a whole. And if you look where humanity is going, and I think we live in a world where the media tries to tell us because they strive on bad news that we're sort of going into this apocalyptic direction. And the truth is, if you zoom out, that we're actually going into really great progress, like you know, in, in science, like in, in medicine. And this is actually so sad that especially actually the younger generation at the moment has this dystopian view as if life is going wherever in totally wrong direction. While, again, I think we're going to have the coolest decades of humanity over the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years. What does the world look like in 2040? First of all, psychedelics. I think psychedelics gonna really contribute to sort of a global happiness. That's just like a more like optimistic view because as it has the potential to cure individual fear and trauma, I think it also can help society as a whole with certain traumata we all confronted, then take aging. Like, truth is, aging really sucks. Average life expectancy has gone up actually significantly. But the truth is, which nobody's really talking about, is that the last 20 years, 30 years, sort of starting at 65, you have health issues and they're not fun. Like old people who lose their muscle mass, look at my parents, they still, thanks God, they have a happy few in life, but they're in their 70s. Practically every month, they have a new, small or big problem. If we just could make the last 30 years much better. Like imagine you could be 40 or 50 body-wise and brain-wise till the age of 85 and then die. That would be a huge deal for humanity. What's coming up for me was kind of a question or a hypothesis. Do you have a fear of aging? Aging sucks. And I'm just like admitting it. Yes, I want to have the benefits, which is practically getting smarter, learning more, getting wiser but I don't want to have these benefits at the cost of my physical health. Like I want to get rid of that. Aging in itself sucks. Yeah. Linking it back to psychedelics around making friends with our fears. 
So is there a case to be made that through your psychedelic experiences, it changes your perception? Yeah, that's a good question. Just making friends with your fears is maybe too nicely said, because I have this deep belief that psychedelics don't change you at all. Like they just make you more in sync with who you really are and show you what you really want. And every individual is different. And I always had an issue accepting, say, rules or things which I don't like. So for me, actually, psychedelics increased the drive to find solutions to problems which I really deem as very detrimental to humanity. Like I had actually one trip where I was like, oh my God, aging sucks. Psychedelics, in my case, really took away the fear of dying completely because I deeply, deeply believe that there is one life after the other in a sort of eternal circle of rebirth. And on a very spiritual side, I believe we have an eternal soul, yeah, which is going from life to life. But at the same time, it doesn't conflict in my view with that I so much have fun living this life that it's sort of my challenge in a good way, accepted like in this life to say, hey, why can't we crack it a bit? We are having a human experience. Yes, we are eternal souls, but in this life, we're having a human experience. So we might as well honor that and have fun. And part of being human is this idea of wanting to, to be here and not dying. 100%. It doesn't mean that all of our next existences are necessarily human. Like they could be in a completely different form and we will not be able to grasp it. That is one of the risks I see with some people who take psychedelics. I'm deeply convinced that every trip taught me that. Actually, one trip did that in a very harsh way because it was a, what you would call a bad trip, but it was a very good one because the message was don't do trips for escapism. You learn something about yourself, about the construction of life and the universe, but then you need to go back and do this life because that's what you meant to do and you need to do it as good as possible for no other reason. It's not a competition. It's not being better than others, but I would say it's almost sacred duty if you got that life and maybe you gave it to yourself because the question is from whom do we get it? Maybe it's like we sort of picked our life ourselves. So it's sort of almost, I would say, my duty to myself to be the best version and to make the most out of that experience, I personally believe I have designed for myself because I'm the designer of that. And then I'm going, my soul is going to design the next one, the next one. And it's not allowed, so to say, to be lazy or to escape because my soul had an intention why I'm doing this here. How many times have you had psychedelic experiences? It was like maybe 15 times. And the ideal timing, like I either do it when I really need it. So for example, like the last month I went to a very harsh uh, emotional summer. So, so I did it because I needed it. Or when I feel I'm ready, like then it's normally like in an annual holiday when I also have time to do uh, the preparation and the integration work. So ideally in a holiday situation for me or when I really like, okay, now I'm, I really need it. I want to bring us back to trends. What, what's exciting in psychedelic medicine today? And maybe you can also talk about mental health solutions. At Apiron, like we have a dedicated venture fund called Remind, focused on the broad theme of mental and neurological health. You have sort of all the mental health stuff like depression, anxiety, addiction, but you also have neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, dementia. On a very big picture, I think 
our brain and our mind is really the final frontier. The last years, we really started to understand the brain much better to really make these leaps forward, like what we see with psychedelic therapies. I think it is actually the most complex and beautiful organ we have. There will never be a one-size-fits-all or there is the magic pill which solves everything. So just if we stay in mental health or just if we stay in depression, we're going to need multiple interventions because reasons might be different, like trauma or pain or fears, but it could also be like some physical problem in your body. This is why I believe we also need multiple solutions. Like someone who figured out cancer is not one reason and you would treat a liver cancer different than, uh, I don't know, blood cancer. But anyway, so this is why this is such a broad field. However, if we stay in the psychological issues, so let's say again, depression, anxiety, addiction, all of that, then I think the most important tool over the next decades will be psychedelics. Not the only one, but the most important one. This is why I'm most excited about psychedelics. But then you have so many others. We have a very cool brain-computer interface company called BlackRock Neurotech. We have already one patient who has ALS in, in the end phase, so he's completely locked into his body, and he can't even speak because ALS, you lose muscle function, and he really is like where he's like frozen. And with our VCI brain-computer this guy is thinking, and by the way, it's literally originated in his brain. It's not that we look at his eyes and he's blinking. He's thinking of words, and the computer is speaking for him. So this is real, practically, telepathy. And for this person, this is stay and night because he finally can communicate with his world again. He can talk to his wife. It's very heartwarming, the videos, if you see them. I think this is so exciting when we just started to, to really learn about the brain. How do you think about first-generation classic psychedelic compounds versus new chemical entities? My thoughts are very pragmatic because like, I think it's great if we, if we try to find new psychedelics. I mean, that's what Shulgin did. That's how some of psychedelics people use today have been originated. Um, but per definition... They are new, hence you need to go through the whole cumbersome drug development life. That means you start as a preclinical drug, you do your animal testing, then you do your phase one, whatever. So they are realistically 10 years behind. While I would almost say the hack and the shortcut, mainly a tie and compost were able to take because they were the first ones and were able to get solid patent positions around first generation psychedelics. They could shortcut all of that. And we started partly phase one, sometimes even in phase two right away. And that is literally saving five to 10 years. And by the way, Atai, my own company, I started and Atai then owns a stake in Compass, which we helped building. We also doing new psychedelics. I just want to make people aware that we're still doing that because maybe 10 years, we're going to have better versions of them. But till then... The first generation psychedelics are the ones which are going to come to market in the next two, three, four years. And luckily, because we were, again, we were the first ones, are almost all owned, patent-wise owned, and sort of done by, by Compass and Atai. How do you think about short-acting psychedelic compounds versus longer-acting? First of all, you need to look at what you want to solve. So there will be different indications. People will say psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression, but if you're just addicted to smoking alcohol, you can eat psilocybin. But if you like, 
if you're really addicted to uh, cocaine, maybe you have to do DMT or even start with ibogaine, but definitely when you're opioid addict or heroin addict, then you need to do ibogaine. It depends on the reason why, for example, somebody got addicted or why somebody got depression. And then maybe even on the patient itself, because I've seen different people, including myself. So I react to some things different than my colleagues would expect I react to. And ultimately that brings me to my most important belief is that these are not just medical drugs, I mean, for sure they're medical drugs, but these are drugs, most of them, only our Arketam might be an exemption, which have to be taken with a therapist together because the therapist knows everything about the patient. He or she will make the analysis, like what does the patient have? Where does it come from? And then the therapist will make a reasonable assumption which psychedelic drug to try. And then maybe the therapist concludes, if it didn't fully work, we should try another one. It's literally like a doctor, when you have cancer, an oncologist is looking, which kind of cancer do you have? What are your genetic predispositions? He makes an assumption and then gives you a very customized chemotherapy, gene therapy. And that I think is the same how we have to approach psychedelics. There is no one-size-fits-all psychedelic. Like, like ibogaine, for example, is extremely good for addiction, including opioid addiction. If somebody goes through a trauma, then maybe you need the four-hour mushroom trip because maybe that takes just time. You can't do it in 15 minutes. It's really individual. What's your perspective on non-hallucinogenic psychedelic analogs? Again, I think it's what you want to solve. It seems to be that neuroplasticity, increased neuroplasticity alone is beneficial for your mental health. This is why people do actually see, although it's very anecdotal, I'm very careful, yeah, because there are not many studies on it, but it seems, at least when I talk to friends who do microdosing, that microdosing is helping you. Yeah? And obviously you don't have a triple microdosing, it's the whole purpose. So this is one of the reasons why I believe that neuroplasticity alone is already beneficial. If a psychological reason is the root cause of your respective mental health issue. I think without a really deep trip, which is the whole purpose is to confront your fears, work through your trauma and dissolve them, I don't think you're going to be healed. Yeah, you might be helped, but maybe you're not healed. But by the way, think in the future and you have all these psychedelics available and maybe you also have some non-hallucinogenic psychedelics. question is, call with them, will we call them psychedelics? but let's say some therapeutics who create neuroplasticity. And imagine then a certain person goes to the doctor, to the therapist, and the therapist would say, look, we have this one drug, let's call it psilocybin for now, and you're going to have a four-hour trip, can be rocky, you're going to confront your trauma because I know you as my patient and you have this and this trauma and you haven't confronted it, you can't confront it in talk therapy with me. Uh, uh, So you're going to go through the trauma, it's not going to be fun, but you're going to be really better. Or we can give you that neuroplasticity booster. Maybe you're not fully better, but like you don't need to go through that rocky trip. I do think actually some people might say, you know what? I don't want to confront my deepest fears. I take the quick fix, yeah, even if I'm not fully fixed, yeah. Again, because people have the freedom to decide. I come always back to what, what my goal is with a Thai compass and then our whole Remind portfolio is to create as many treatment options as possible for the therapist so that they have as many tools as possible at their hands to work with their patients. What do you think about ketamine telehealth? Horrible. Should be hopefully somewhere made illegal. I deeply believe that if you really want to go 
or if you really want to sort of heal trauma, like you need a therapist next to you and maybe even holding your hand. I know it's really crazy in America that they're not allowed to hold your hand. But like, I think that human side of psychedelic therapy is extremely important. And by the way, don't forget like all psychedelic drugs and we try always to forget that can be in a certain extent abused as well. Ketamine can be from some people used as a party drug and as escapism. And I think it's deeply spiritually wrong I think we have to live this life and we can, we can use psychedelics to get insights and get support to live that life, but we have to get back. And I do see people who get lost in psychedelics because they see it as escapism and, and ketamine is, is one of them. And then they have side effects. If you do it every weekend, you're going to somewhere and ruin your bladder. Yeah. And then you're going to wear a diaper uh, your entire life. And that's not funny and definitely not sexy. The way I think about it is that you can use psychedelics for connection or disconnection. And, and connection is with our world, with ourselves, with our communities. But disconnection, it means what you said. It means abuse and escapism. And by the way, people sometimes say, oh, he's saying all of that because he wants to control the market. He has the patents. Yeah, da, 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 da. Like, fact is how we see the world is like humanity has seen psychedelics for 10,000 years with the only exception in the 60s. So the 60s, which a lot of people reference to, Timothy Leary, who wanted to put it in the water and all of that, that was the exception. This was the only time where people said, oh, everybody should do it all the time in any circumstance. The other 10,000 years of humanity, and I'm extremely passionate about history because I think we can learn a lot about it, like how did we become the humans we are now, but especially about psychedelic history, all the other times psychedelics were highly regulated. Take the Eleusinian mysteries. It was partly punished by death to do it outside the the which we know is a psychedelic ring. And they did it exactly twice a year. And if you go through all of the psychedelic cults, they normally did it once a year or twice a year. So that seems to be the right rhythm. And it was super controlled. You had to do it with a priest or with a shaman. You had to do all the prep work, which is way more cumbersome than our prep work. So you had to fast for weeks. And what we are doing, the shamans of the past are now the psychotherapists. Like we're just bringing psychedelics back into sort of the framework, which they have always been, except in the 60s. And in the 60s, it got terribly wrong because this yeah. sort of uncontrolled, loose view on psychedelics opened up all the damage then which has been done to psychedelics by society, by regulators. And I just want to practically bring it back the way we integrated psychedelics in, in humanity as we have done it for millennia. There are hundreds of companies now that are in the psychedelic medicine field. How do you think about the dynamics between the formation today and what the field will look like in a couple of years? Yeah, so I think that's very unfortunate because a lot of these hundreds of companies are scammed. Because if you look at like the first generation psychedelics are mainly owned in terms of intellectual property and patents around them by a tie and compass and maybe two or three others. So the field of companies who in a legit way do drug development around first generation psychedelics is really small. The problem is already that a lot of people don't know the difference. They might feel because originally Magic Mushrooms is a nature product that, oh, everybody can work with it. Because unfortunately still, which is completely the wrong analogy, a lot of people compare 
psychedelics industry with the cannabis industry, which is wrong from A to Z. Yeah. That means that there are some companies who say, oh, we're also working with psilocybin. And I've looked at a lot of them and weirdly, a lot of them have actually pitched it to me. And I was listening to them, their pitches when they were fundraising because they asked for a meeting. And I was like, you do know that you are violating all the patterns, for example, Compass Passways has. And that was the shocking thing is some of them didn't even know because they didn't even think that far. So there were a lot of there was a gold rush and a lot of, let's say, bounty hunters who just thought if I write psychedelic company on my pitch deck, I'm going to get more money. So that did confuse investors. So I think that did harm a bit for the entire industry. And I think that kind of bad players need to wash out. And some of them are washed out already. First of all, because a lot of companies don't have the legal basis somewhere to do a business because Compass and Atai own most of the patents. Then secondly, even if you do something valuable, even worse, if you don't do something which is based on patents, you will never be able to raise enough money. So many, many companies were able to raise 5 million here and there. But to do real drug development, you need per indication and per drug, you need 100 million plus. Yeah, And that's what you're seeing, by the way, even if companies had something fundamentally valuable, which I doubt for most of these companies, most of them then don't have the fundraising capabilities to, to raise what they needed if they have something. And by the way, all of them, literally, meaning we had 20 or 30 companies, Atai was looking at because they call us and say, oh, you have cash. We have around 350 million cash yeah, plus credit lines. And we couldn't find anything valuable. Otherwise, we would buy companies. You would see Atai buying left to right. Um, but there is because we're like, no, we own it. We have the patterns. So it's a messy situation because, again, too many bounty hunters, uh, gold rushers went into that. So it doesn't mean that there are niches which are not done by a tie and compass. Niche indications, niche drugs doesn't mean, for example, you have clinic models, like you have sort of a whole service industry around it. Doesn't mean that there are companies who do second generation psychedelics, but then the companies who do second generation psychedelics, they often were surfing on, oh, look, psilocybin is going to be approved in two to three years, and they were insinuating to their investors that they could be as quick. Now, if you do a second generation psychedelic, you're a new chemical entity that means good luck for the next 10 years. And the ties, by the way, having dozens of them. It's not that we don't do that. We just don't talk about it because it's a long time away. We talk about our first generations, but that doesn't mean we don't have it. So we have most likely more new chemical entities in our drug development pipeline than most others, yeah, but we don't make a big deal out of it because we realistically know they are a long time away. So long story short, I think it's really it did hurt the business side of it from scams to companies who created with their investors very unrealistic expectations about timelines and funding needed. And this is why on the drug development side, I think it will be an oligopoly of a few companies who have the science, who have the patents, and who have the cash and who have the quality of the management. And obviously all these four things are interdependent in order to really bring drugs to approval, because that's it what at the end it's all about, bringing drugs to approval in order to help patients who need it. Mm -hmm. And how about infrastructure in terms of delivering the care? How do you think about that ecosystem? Well, there are some cool newly formed players, I don't know, Field Trip, Mind Bloom, whatever. But on the other side, 
there are thousands and thousands of therapists who are already there, but I'm deeply convinced that's how it's going to be, that every single therapist will include certain psychedelics in their work. We didn't really talk about the larger pharma companies and they haven't been really involved, at least not publicly. So can you give us the insider view on what's happening with the uh, Pfizer's of the world in the psychedelic space? First of all, people underestimate what pharma companies are. Pharma companies are not innovation companies. That is biotech. Pharma companies are distribution machines. So they normally buy stuff rather late stage or just partner up. So it's not unusual what we see now. And then you had indeed with psychedelics, you had a little bit the stigma, which I think now is almost gone. But like, I remember when I started a tie and told people, oh, I'm starting a psychedelic focused company, mental health company, even the coolest and most like progressive forward thinking investors said, Christian, no, not really. Like, or a lot of them actually said, ah, I think it's, you are onto something, but I can't invest because I don't know if my LPs in my fund would approve that. So if you look at who funded Atai and Compass, it were always individual people, which I'm very, very grateful about, who were both trusting me with my vision, but also put their own money at work. So didn't have any LPs they need to be worried about. So Peter Thiel, Mike Novogratz, uh, Louis Bacon, and so ever. Practically in the earlier rounds, you had no funds and not because they didn't believe, meaning some might not have believed what we're doing, but many of them I talked to, like the typical biotech funds or typical venture funds, they did think we're onto something. They were skeptical, but like they did think we're onto something, but they didn't really know, oh, we have a Middle Eastern LP. Is this a drug? Although we always make clear it is a therapeutic and we're just doing FDA approved studies. It was just too crazy at the beginning. That obviously has changed a lot. And now Atai and Compass are listed and all the blue chip uh, investors are in it. I'm curious about that process that you go through in order to find opportunities and areas to invest in. Uh, it's basically investing in the future. So how do you think about it? How organized that exploration is and how it's just like things that come into your realm? A hundred percent the latter ones. I believe in sort of coordinated chaos, in coordinated coincidence. First of all, my spiritual view on life is that anything which is happening to you is good. You just might not realize it in the moment. And I know I'm mentioning that because I had a rough relationship episode in, in the summer. Is like, I know because then a lot of people are always then either emailing me or saying on Twitter, always oh, saying that because he's so happy and he's so privileged and blah, blah, blah which is not the case. Like I went through really, really hard times, but I deeply believe at the end and I remind myself when I go to challenging times myself that literally everything is what is happening is ultimately good for me. And then the second is that I think by your thoughts, you attract. So I believe in the law of attraction that you attract things. And this is why sometimes you attract painful stuff because it's a lesson you need to learn in order to actually get something. And with the same attitude, I'm sort of approaching business in terms of, I deeply believe that if you, if you have an open heart and an open mind, you kind of get presented by life of opportunities. Yeah. And this is why I think also when people say, oh, but you have opportunities because you, I don't know, successful or whatever. I'm like, look, I wasn't always like that. Like I was like, I grew up in a 90 people village in rural Bavaria 
in a very normal family who had nothing to do with business, nothing to do with entrepreneurship. I had to make tough decisions in my youth because I was gay and I was like, oh, this doesn't resonate here. Yeah, so I'm going to have a shitty life. So I decided not to be, not, not to be gay, it's the wrong word, but like not to talk about it and just focus on other stuff, which by the way, was not funny. But on the other side, it's a short example because I decided not to come out because there was zero upside because like I, my social life would have been ruined. I would have been the outcast and there was nobody else to date. If there would have been a hot guy, I would have said, yeah, like me too. But like, uh, but there wasn't this opportunity. Uh, so I decided to not talk about it. And what you do if you're not dating in your teens, you, you learn. So I focused on school that made me one of the best pupils in Germany that gave me a scholarship. That scholarship ultimately made me meet the two founders of Rebo Pharma or with whom I founded then Rebo Pharma, which then became Alnylam, which was my first wealth creation. So if I always certainly say, if I would have been straight, yeah, I wouldn't be on your podcast because I would have dated the shit out of my teens. My life would have been different, maybe not worse, maybe not better. Like, I don't know, would have been different. Yeah. But because I approached that sort of hardship with a constructive view and say, okay, let's make the most out of my school life when you're not dating. Oh, let's learn. Let's explore science, whatever. It made me who I am now. And so, but long story short, so I, with the same attitude, I really go through everything. And then things come. Like I didn't wake up one morning and said, wow, mental health crisis is really bad. And I think psychedelics is the solution. I was literally forced, literally forced by the universe, fate, life, coincidence. I don't know what you want to call it in order to take my first psychedelic trip. There was such a pre-story to it. I didn't want to do it. I think life knew that Christian has to meet a scientist first because I would never have done it if I wouldn't have the scientific background because I'm such a hypochondriac. So I met a really cool neuroscientist, Professor Spannagel, big shout out, Rainer, in 2013. And he, for the very first time, told me about psychedelics. And I was like, you're crazy. Like, this is insane. Go away. And he was like, no, let me send you stuff I'm working on because he was one of the few who's back then when it was not cool, was working with psychedelics. So he sent me all the studies. And so for a year, I was reading about it. And I was like, this is really interesting science and really like fundamental stuff. And then one year later, I was with two of my closest friends. Again, big shout out to Jules and Len. And I was in the Caribbean and I knew they were doing stuff, but I didn't want to know it actually. And they were actually saying, oh, we're going to do mushrooms tomorrow. We know you don't want to do it. Just want to let you know that we're off tomorrow. And I was like, you know what? Um, actually, I think I want to do it because I read a, a year long about it and scientifically that all makes sense. And somehow I feel I should do it now. And when all of this, if they would have said it, but I have never met Rainer, who I really met randomly uh, at a dinner, I wouldn't have done it because I wouldn't have the scientific backing. But there are people who would say Christian is interpreting too much in these stuff. But like, first of all, I think it's a great way to live your life. It makes me definitely happier. It makes me also more alert because I'm observing things people tell me and I see always through that lens, is there something in it? And it gave me some of my greatest, not just investments, but my greatest uh, experiences in life. Longevity, like I started getting worried about aging. Then you talk to people. Then I met James Paya, with whom I studied Cambrian, and Matthias, with whom I started Rejuveron. Like many, many, many things came by, I would say, organized coincidence. And I was open enough to say, oh, there might be something. Let's sort of follow that. Like engineering serendipity. That's a good way to put it. We like to do a, a rapid fire round of questions where it's good to just reply with the first thing that comes to mind. So 
first question is, what is your superpower? I think to a certain degree, it's resilience, although it was tested the last month, but I think I'm gaining it back. Then I think definitely optimism. I'm an eternal optimist for myself, for humanity. Do you have any fundraising tips for entrepreneurs? Statistics. If you, it's hard to raise funds, meet more people. It's a pure statistical exercise. If you meet enough people, somebody's going to like what you're doing, unless you really have a stupid idea. But if you do have a good idea, just meet more people. Like, and that is, I think, what a lot of people dislearned in the hype because fundraising was so easy. And now they suddenly say, a lot of portfolio companies call me, oh, I can't fundraise anymore. And then you're like, how many people did you speak to? At 10, I was like, well, great, speak to 100. Statistically, somewhere and somebody's going to like what you do. What is your mindset during an economic downturn? Which we are at the moment. Again, I try to be resilient, but it is obviously like a, there's no way to sugarcoat it. Like downturns and bear markets are hard. Everything which was easy two years ago, you now need more energy, whatever. And like somebody that, that takes a toll. So my mindset is, first of all, the world's and especially the business world goes in cycles. So it's going to go away. Like the same, we knew that the land of milk and honey uh, and easy capital and everything is easy going couldn't last forever. The same, that sort of downturn will not last forever. How long? I don't know. My personal view is that we definitely have another year to go till we sort of through all that cycle of inflation uh, curbing and interest rates and the spillover effects. But it's going to end somewhere. Nothing lasts in terms of business cycles forever. You need to just make sure that you come out at the end alive. That's what I tell my portfolio companies. Increase run rate. It's not fun because that normally means in the business we are in laying off people. Yeah, maybe cut your pipeline if you're in biotech and do one trial less. Yeah, But make sure that you have enough run rate because time is healing everything. That's as simple as it's true. And time will also heal that crisis. You just need to make sure that you're still alive at the end. And nobody knows how long it takes. So the longer you can increase your run rate, the higher the probability that you will be one of the companies who makes it. Do you think that the companies within psychedelics have a role or uh, contribution towards indigenous reciprocity and some of these cultures that have been stewarding these medicines? If you would ask me, do they have a legal obligation? No, because I think you also have many other things where you find things in nature, make it in a medicine. But I think there is a moral obligation and we're honoring uh, at a type. We have a, we have a social impact arm or a philanthropy arm, a Thai impact, where access is one topic of a Thai impact and then giving back to indigenous communities is another one. What do you have to say to people who are critical of patents and patent strategy within the psychedelic field? that they're deeply wrong. First of all, the way Atai and Compass are looking on psychedelics is the way humanity has looked at them for the last 10,000 years, except of the 60s. This is how indigenous people do it. Very regulated, very controlled access, like da-da-da-da-da. Second, we should accept reality. A lot of people who want to have the discussion about patterns truly want to have a discussion about capitalism. I'm up for that. That's a very intellectually... Uh, interesting discussion, but don't confuse it and say, oh, I want to make it now about psychedelics. What you truly want, if you are against patterns in any form, you may have a problem with capitalism. I think capitalism is the best system we have, not 
flawless. Yeah, but it's a little bit like democracy. It's the best one we have. But let's just not confuse it with, oh, it's a psychedelic discussion. So as long as we accept reality, how our medical system is, that we have an FDA where things need to go through to come to the people who really need it. So that if we want to help those people, we need to get it into the medical system. And the only way to get it into the medical system is via FDA uh, trials. And if you want to do FDA trials, you need funding and you need not 5 million, not 10 million. You need more than 100 million per drug. And in order to get that money from investors, you need patents full stop. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. So I actually would push back and say, all the people who come with that no patents bullshit, I'm not going to show up at Burning Man and going to collect psychedelics. I'm not going to stop people going to shamans. But that is a tiny, very elite group of people, which is completely absurd that this elite group of people who has the means to do psychedelics already now wants to not give billions of people whom the only way is to get it in the medical system wants to deny these people, these billions of people, the help they need. And that is what truly that sentence is. If you're against patterns, you automatically say, I'm denying billions of people with a real need, not a pleasure need, yeah, the access to psychedelics. And honestly, then you're a dick. This is Business Trip, a podcast about the business of psychedelics. If you like this episode, you can help us by subscribing to the podcast and leaving a review. You can tweet at us or find us on the gram at Business Trip FM. And if you're building a company in psychedelics, hit us up. My email is greg at businesstrip.fm. Oh, and one last thing. We'd like to meet our listeners and get your input as we're planning new episodes. If you've listened to more than five episodes, email me your thoughts and ideas at greg at businesstrip.fm. And we'll give you a shout out in the next episode we record. I'm Greg Kubin, and my co-host is Matthias Serebrinski. Producer and editor is Jonathan Davis. Sound design and engineering came from Zach Frank. Our theme music is by Dorian Love, and additional music credits are in the show notes. This is Business Trip. Thanks for tripping with us. We'll see you next time. Bye. What's the molecule on the jacket that you're wearing? My favorite psychedelic is psilocybin. And I have it tattooed on my right arm. On my right arm. Because it's like your first love. For me, the most impactful one. It's my favorite one.